This is a Federal News Network podcast. President Biden said he wants publicly funded infrastructure projects to be built with unionized labor. And unions are ready for the task. For one view of the prospects for what most people understand by the word infrastructure, we turn to the president of the Transportation Trades Department at the AFL-CIO, Greg Regan. Mr. Regan, good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And looking at the proposals for infrastructure, what do you count as the dollars that are actually for infrastructure as it's understood by the Transportation Trades Department? I'm thinking roads, bridges, and what else? Yeah, if you look at the American Jobs Plan, you've got over $400 billion in infrastructure. I'm sorry, it's more like $800 billion in core infrastructure, roads, bridges, airports, rail, transit, the ports. These are all interconnected. They all rely on each other. And if we're going to have a resilient, modern infrastructure system, they all need to be brought up to speed and they all need to get major investments into the system. And we hear this often that our infrastructure is old and crumbling, but what's the quantitative aspect of that? Because, you know, there's lots of new bridges and there's lots of new facilities here and there. So how do you really get an idea of where this is all needed? When you look at the lost income that people have every day, delays caused by traffic congestion alone cost $160 billion a year. American families are forced to pay over $1,000 every year in wasted time and fuel. Our cities are growing, and we are seeing more inefficient public transit systems. Our rail infrastructure, uh, on-time performance is not nearly where it needs to be. And all of this can be solved, frankly, with more investment. We're not talking about you know, frivolous spending and more you know, just bells and whistles. We're talking about really modernizing our communities and making sure that people have more access to jobs, more opportunities, and frankly, all of these create jobs. Every billion dollars in infrastructure creates 21,000 jobs across every single sector of the economy. And does that include pipelines as well? Absolutely. All right. And let me ask you a devil's advocate question. The president has said these should be union jobs. Should they be necessarily if a particular public entity can get a lower price for the taxpayer with a non-union shop? I think that when you look at union jobs, union workers earn higher wages. They're more likely to have retirement plans, greater access to paid sick days. They contribute more to health care plans. This isn't money that is just being frivoled away. It is, it is money that goes into our economy and, and reinvested into the communities in which these people earn. I actually think that if there is a higher cost on the front end, it actually is a greater benefit to the overall economy when we're creating good jobs and not just trying to scrape along and look at our immediate bottom line. I think it's a long-term investment that is better for the overall communities. My understanding is at one time the unions, or tell me if they still do, offer a lot of the training and job and human development needed for this type of work and construction because it's not unskilled labor at all, is it? That's correct. A lot of the unions are providing, especially in the building and construction trades, they have massive training facilities. And when people use union labor, they're getting the best workers on this. I've spoken to some Republican members of Congress who were contractors before they came to Congress, and they support you know, Davis-Bacon and, and project labor agreements because in their experience as businessmen, outside of the political spectrum, as businessmen, they found that their projects were completed on time with better work when they use union labor. We're speaking with Greg Regan. He's secretary-treasurer of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. And just for our count, how many unions, individual unions, are involved in transportation trades? We have 33 affiliated unions across all modes. So whether it be ports, transit, rail, highway bridge construction, aviation, 
if it moves, we represent the people who build, operate, and maintain it. That would include people like the machinists, too, right? Don't they tend to be the ones in the aviation trade? Yes, they are a big and important affiliate of ours. And of the 33, do you have a rough estimate of how many members that represents, how many individuals that would like to get good work? It's several million individuals. Uh, it changes, obviously, you know, with the economy. But if you count the overall, the AFL-CIO counts 14, 15 million people. We are right up there, probably three or four million. And out of curiosity, you know, the level of industrial sector as opposed to public sector unionizing has been a little bit flat. I mean, the growth seems to be in the public sector. Do you see the possibility of real spending like this, $800 billion over how many years, on infrastructure as possibly revitalizing the union movement itself? Absolutely. And, and if you look at the sectors that I represent, we have the highest union density in the private sector of any other industry. Aviation is 85-90% unionized. Rail is wall-to-wall union. Public transit is unionized, although that is more on the public side, as you mentioned. But if you look at aviation, for instance, before the pandemic hit, they were having massive profits. They were doing as well as they've ever done in the history of commercial aviation. And the people that worked there, the pilots, the flight attendants, the maintenance workers, the ground crew workers, those are good middle-class jobs. So we've shown that in the private sector, you can have successful businesses and have strong unions and strong union contracts where people are getting a share of that profit for themselves. So unions are not job killers. In fact, we've shown in the transportation sector that you can have that partnership. You can have strong business, strong competitiveness, and have strong unions. And in some ways, the views of those that are promoting all of this green economy and opposing new pipelines, for example, for the transport of fossil fuels may differ in their interests from what the trade unions see. How do you reconcile that question? I think the debate over green infrastructure has unfortunately been simplified into whether it's a quote-unquote Green New Deal or not. You know, People view it as black and white, and I just don't think that's true. If you look at what we're talking about in terms of investment in public transit, in passenger rail, frankly, improving our highways and bridges, all of that will green our infrastructure overall. If we are going to move towards more electrification, electric vehicles, things like that, we need to build the infrastructure to sustain it. And that is going to be a lot of construction. And in the meantime, we are still going to have to fuel an entire economy on the resources we have right now. So we need to have resiliency that will allow us to be competitive in the short term as we modernize moving forward. And I guess if that $800 billion does become law, there's probably not much in there for us that are in SAG-AFTRA, is there? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think, frankly, on the relief plan that passed, that is where you're going to see a lot more of the support for <laughs> other businesses. But you know, the human infrastructure aspect of the American Jobs Plan, the, uh, the second bill that Biden released or, or proposal he released, that will do more towards community building and hopefully will help your brothers and sisters at SAG-AFTRA. And I could be the voice on a new subway system, I suppose, doors opening. <laughs> there you go. All right. Greg Regan is president of the Transportation Trades Department at the AFL-CIO. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic 
Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And 
but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. 
And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. With Verizon, you can now get a private 5G network, so you can do more than connect your business. You can make it even smarter. Now ports can know where every piece of cargo is and where it's going. Robots can predict breakdowns and order their own replacement parts. And retailers can get ahead of the fashion trend of the day with a new line tomorrow. With a Verizon private 5G network, you can get more agility and security, giving you more control of your business. We call this enterprise intelligence. From the network America relies on, Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available in select areas. Pre-qualification required for private 5G network. Terms apply. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.